So in season five of Franchise Findings, we're gonna to continue to go through some of the most popular franchises in the United States and globe. Also, we're going through some emerging franchise concepts that have anywhere from two, five, hundred locations throughout the United States growing and looking to take on the world with their franchise system. We continue to interview founders of franchises as well as franchisees. So a lot of information for you. Hope you enjoy season five of Franchise Findings. Hey, you have Patrick Fendaro here, co-founder at Vetted Biz and Visa Franchise. Very excited to have on Joanna Zlenko who is the founder of The Closet Trading Company. It was founded 19 years ago, back in uh, 2003, uh, when Joanna was a freshman in college. And they've expanded through corporate locations as well as they're expanding recently through franchising. So we're gonna talk all about this pretty unique um, industry that honestly, I didn't know too much about, but I, I as I started talk, speaking more with Joanna as well as um, investigating, it seems like a huge, huge market that, that's under tap. So we'll talk about their, um, Joanna's specific franchise opportunity, the industry and, uh, their plans for growth, um, in California, Florida and across the U S so Joanna, really appreciate you joining today. Thanks so much, Patrick. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I don't know like what prompted you as a freshman to, to get into business. When I was a freshman, I just wanted to, you know, party, ski and uh, have fun. <laughs> I won't even pretend that I had any plans to do it. It was it was actually pretty serendipitous. I okay. came to Santa Barbara for UCSB. It was my freshman year and I was looking for a part time job and I came across a now hiring sign in a window called the number and the the woman came outside and she said, I'm trying to start a vintage clothing shop, which is what it was going to be originally. And I was excited because I worked in those kinds of stores in high school. I was like, oh, perfect. Okay. This is the job for me. <laughs> and in, in San Francisco, those kinds of stores are really popular. We had a lot of them and that's what I did all of high school. And I was like, I know a little bit about this. And she hired me on the spot and I helped her get the boutique open. It was called The Closet because it was about 400 square feet. It was a tiny, tiny little shop. It was yeah. sandwiched between McDonald's and McDonald's dumpster in an alley. Oh, so wow. Super so glamorous. <laughs> and um, we painted and we built fitting rooms and we, we got the store open. We thrifted some, some clothing and accessories from local thrift shops to resell and Unfortunately, it was not a big hit. Um, the Santa Barbara clients were not really interested in true vintage clothing. It was a really different market than San Francisco. And the original owner, her husband's job was relocated out of state. So a few months after opening, she's, you know, figured, well, we gave it a shot and that was it. And I just felt like there was so much potential. In San Francisco, we had these yeah. resale stores that sold contemporary stuff secondhand, and those okay. did really well. And I figured, look, my friends in college would buy these resale true religion jeans and juicy couture tracksuits in 2003 all day long. So let's find a way to bring that stuff in. And she gave me the opportunity to take over the lease and some debt that she had from opening the business, and it became mine. And so so you were, that what, was, 18, 19? I was 18, yeah. And it just... So what did your parents say about having a lease assigned to you? <laughs> you know, I was really, really <laughs> close with my grandma. She raised me. And she was just such an entrepreneurially minded person for someone who was born in 1915. She... <laughs> 
I mean, she just was such a forward thinker. And she said, you know what, you have nothing to lose right now. This is the time to do it. The worst that can happen is you'll fail and then you'll have some debt and you'll deal with it because you're 18. So, and she was right. <laughs> <laughs> she totally like, it was like, just yeah, do no it. kids, no nothing. You can just exactly. focus on your studies and build yeah. this business. And exactly. So that's how it started. So I right away changed it to resell and consignment. So we started buying the contemporary stuff. We didn't do any more vintage really. And my friends from the dorms would bring in their stuff. And we started kind of slowly building a clientele in Santa Barbara. And we stayed in that original space for six years, all the way through when I graduated. So the supply side, I imagine there were a ton of like wealthy people from LA going to UCSB. And uh, who was buying? Was it the locals that were buying or other students that would buy them? A lot of students, so we did trade so that you could bring in, you know, your Von Dutch hat that you were done with and trade it in for that Ed Hardy t-shirt that you really wanted. <laughs> and that was a lot of it. A lot of it was store credit trade. And so our, our sellers and our buyers were pretty much the same market. Yeah. And then going yeah. to senior year, like, do you have employees under you? How were you managing school and, and then running this uh, business? Yeah, I had uh, I had friends helping out at first, so they would. Yeah. It was sophisticated. They would leave, leave a post-it in the cash drawer with how much they felt like they should be paid for the time they were there. Awesome. <laughs> so it'd be like twenty dollars, and then they would take twenty dollars out of the till, and that was payrolls. <laughs> but it kept the store open while we were in school, and and in a way, it was perfect. It kind of helped pay for a little bit of school, helped pay for my expenses. It was some like a project that we had going on. And as I got closer to graduating, I graduated in 2007, you know, and we were starting to see the beginnings of the downturn. And I was seeing friends graduating who were having a really hard time getting a job at a college. And so it made me think, you know what, maybe actually there's something here. And I started taking it more seriously at that point and started looking forward to what what can we really make out of this? Is there an, a, a real business here more than just a, a side hustle? And it turned out there was. And then did you, when did you move out of the original space, like adjacent to a McDonald's? Six years later, in uh, 2009, uh, and then in 2010, we opened a a much bigger store on State Street, which is the main drag in Santa Barbara. It was next door to the Apple store, which felt like a really big deal at that point. And um, and that was uh, that it was a turning point in the business. All of a sudden, we had a lot more recognition. Tourists were coming. It was I was actually after I opened the second location. So I'd already opened a second location at that point in, in the neighboring county in Ventura County. And oh, yeah. that store was doing well. And that allowed us to, to leverage the growth from the two current locations and parlay that into the new Santa Barbara store. And we were there for another 10 years before we expanded again in Santa Barbara in 2019. So between Santa Barbara, Ventura County, you have four corporate, basically corporately owned and managed locations. Um, yeah, I had four. I now have five. We just are opening Westlake Village right now. So that one will be uh, okay. open in two weeks. So that's the entry yeah. into LA. That's a big deal. Yeah, we had our first, the first LA store opened in Santa Monica in 2011. Oh, okay. So you were there. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was the third store. And then Woodland Hills, which is where close to where I live now, that was in the fourth LA store. That was 2016. And that one is now a franchise. Okay. Yeah. And then how did you decide, like, why not just like maybe raise some capital and keep opening up stores? Imagine California could have 30 plus of these locations. Yeah. 
why not yeah. just keep growing that way instead of um, instead of the franchising approach? Yeah, there are a few things that that uh, attracted me to franchising. I think similarly to many people, it it does lend itself to a faster growth trajectory. Of course, um, okay. you know you're infusing capital from multiple partners instead of potentially raising debt or raising equity. So I think that was attractive. There's also the factor of I've been doing this my entire career, right? So I have the experience of how to run one of these stores or multiple locations of these stores, and I can certainly help people to grow them. But I really love the idea of franchisees bringing their own experience and their own background. We have franchisees now who come from finance, from marketing, from the church world, from all these different places, you know, from franchises who've done work in, as missionaries, as nurses. And so they bring all these really unique perspectives to the business. And I think they truly enrich the model for future franchisees. So from a purely economic standpoint, I think it, it just it's a way to grow faster, but also from the perspective of how fulfilling of an experience it is to run this business and how holistic the growth can be. I think that there there's just a lot of benefit to bring all these different partners in from different backgrounds and especially from different countries. So, you know, kind of both, yeah, both sides. Yeah, we, we spoke um, offline, but you, you've had uh, investors from like Mexico open up franchises, get an yeah. E2 visa. So, I mean, through mm-hmm. that, they're, they have their small business, they're yeah. living, in, living in the U.S., kids can go to school, and it's kind of the American dream. It is totally the American dream. And I, my parents are immigrants, so as my brother, I was the first person in my family to be born in the United States. So it really hits close to home. You know, we were offered these opportunities, not through franchising specifically, but through opportunities that arguably are only available in this country. And I just love the idea of being able to pay that forward and give another family the opportunity to raise their kids here to have everything that was, you know, offered to us. So the visa part of it is just another aspect that makes franchising, you know, a unique way of growing beyond just like a corporate growth path. Yeah, it's definitely another angle and kind of opens up a huge market. Um, Yeah, totally. Talk a little bit about the the industry. Um, So I've never, you know, bought a high-end, you know, luxury good uh, secondhand. Uh, maybe it's something that I should consider down the line for a gift for my wife or even for me. Um, But yeah, tell me a little bit about this industry and kind of how the dynamics are. And if if you're competing hard with e-commerce, curious to hear from you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The industry is fascinating. Um, It's from, from a consumer standpoint, it's really addicting. Once you can get that Louis Vuitton bag for half price, it's pretty fun to look for like the next thing you want for half price too. So, you know, there, there's that aspirational element. And I, I think that most of us can appreciate the idea of having access to something that might otherwise be a little bit out of reach and or may not even be out of reach, but we just appreciate a good deal because we're savvy enough to get something for the best price available. And I think that that's um, what makes resale fun. Like that's the the really just like the fun part of the model. And then there's also the sustainability side, which is huge. And um, the resale industry, I think re-commerce is the term that's being thrown around a lot right now. It's, It's really the marriage of sustainability and aspiration. It blends the two concepts and they're both 
I mean, tremendously big in our in, with Gen Z right now, right? So the the Gen Z consumer is driving growth in our industry because they are on social media. They spend a lot of time on social media, so they're inspired by celebrity culture, by all these luxury things that might be a little bit um, out of reach. But they're also really motivated by ethical consumption. They're motivated by trying to spend in a way that aligns with their morals and their values and sustainability really fits into that. So it makes sense why the resale industry is trending upward so dramatically right now. And truly it is. It's a, I believe ThreadUp is a big player in our industry and they issue a report every year on the, on the state of the industry. And I believe 2021 report, which is the most recent, um, put it at 30, the resale industry at $33 billion for 2021 projected to double to 77 billion within five years. So it's massively outpacing traditional retail. And there, there is nothing else growing at that speed outside of e-commerce, as you mentioned, and discount e-commerce specifically. And it just totally makes sense. The youngest consumers are driving this trend and it fits with their needs and it fits with their value system. So Gen Z is now I believe that 26% of, of consumers at this point are in that are in the Gen Z age group. They're the single biggest sector of consumers we have. So if they have latched onto something, we're going to see it grow. They have 60 more years of spending ahead of them. So they're really into e-commerce, re-commerce, I should say. And um, we're seeing that across different players in our segment. There's the, as you said, the e-commerce part of it. We are definitely competing with e-commerce players. There's marketplace models where consumers sell to one another. And then there's more traditional e-commerce where um, there's platforms where people can consign their things. You know, the real real is a big player to the service and then the service sells to the public. So they're huge. We're also seeing a lot of those companies move into brick and mortar. So and it's interesting. That, it's changing. I guess what are the pros and cons from like a seller going for one of these hot new platforms versus going with a, a local T, TCTC boutique? And then also like on the consumer side, like what are some good and bads, I guess, for, for both models? Yeah, absolutely. So what I like to think separates us is we offer the consumer a lot of different options so they can sell with us outright. Like they can bring in their let's say they bring in their Gucci handbag, we're going to sell it for $1,000. They can take a portion of that for cash on the spot, or they can choose okay. to take a portion store credit, or they can put it on consignment and make more. So there's a lot of options there. They can make the highest percentage by waiting a little bit, or they can take the instant gratification if that's really what they're looking for that day. Um, our we don't have any competitors currently that are offering all three of those options to consumers. And I think that that flexibility does make us differentiate a little bit in the consumer's eyes. There's also the breadth of brands. So some of the competitors have a really, really narrow spectrum. And they of probably can't they advertise like online, like these high-end French and Italian companies don't want to have their brand being sold online at $500. Is there some yeah. of those issues in the advertisement of these uh, products? There is. Yeah. There's a lot of issues with advertising them on social media and paid ads in particular. They get flagged immediately. So we have to get really creative in how we present them. And we can't we can't use the brand names often. So there, yeah. there are definitely challenges there. Yeah. 
That makes sense. So the consumers are like the optionality that, that you provide. And is, is there still, is it kind of like an in-person touch? Cause it is, you know, depending on the product, it could be, you know, a couple hundred or thousands of dollars that someone's just more comfortable having a transaction kind of happen in person. I think so. Yeah. I think that it, it's nice again to have the flexibility as a consumer, right? It's nice to be able to decide, do I want to ship it in? Do I want to bring it in? We try to make it as, convenient as possible for the consumer. Our, um, we call her Ashley. She's our prototype consumer. <laughs> She's our customer persona. And Ashley is super busy. So we just try to do everything we can to make things <laughs> as convenient for her as possible. We'll come to her house and do home pickups. We'll do, we call it consignment concierge where she can just pull right up and text us and we'll take it out of her trunk. She never has to get out of the car. And we were just saying offline, we have young children. Like, do you really want to get the kid out of the car to go into the store to bring in the thing? So, you know, we, we try to meet Ashley where she's at. And that's, that's been our approach throughout. <laughs> and then so Ashley, so say she's in, um, in Santa Barbara County and the product that she really likes is in the Santa Monica location. Like... Is there, I guess, how does that work out? Is she only able to buy what is in her immediate area or is there kind of like a network effect that and inventories are kind of shared between the locations? Yeah, so we, we launched an e-commerce experience so she can actually go ahead and buy it online. It's super easy. She can use Great. a firm to buy now, pay later. She can have it shipped to her local store. She can have it shipped to her house. So we, we try to, wherever we can, use whatever the latest tech is available because that's what Ashley expects, <laughs> as we all do. <laughs> so. And how old is Ashley? She's 35. 35. <laughs> Two children, so five and seven. 20... <laughs> yeah, I love it. How are you seeing like someone that's interested to get in this space? Like, How much money do they need uh, to open up uh, one of the retail locations as well as like additional working capital until the business breaks even? Yeah. Or should so break even, you we, never know. Right. Um, we recommend a net worth of a minimum of 200000 with 100000 liquid. It costs about 150000 to open up one of these stores, including six months oh. of runtime. So that's what a franchisee should be prepared and should expect to spend. Um, that is really low for, re for retail, as I'm sure you know. So the reason for that oh, is yeah. because we actually consign the initial inventory to the franchisees. So they don't pay for the inventory until it's sold. And that's why hmm. the cost, it's just the build out and then six months of runtime and marketing. And I'm sure depending where you're opening, there could be some TI tenant improvement from the landlord because they want to have a TCTC right. in their, their high-end strip, strip center. Yeah, we try, we try to negotiate it wherever we can. Yeah, definitely. So basically, how, how is the franchisee making money? Yeah, so I think what's cool about the concept, like I said, with the consignment piece is it's a really lean business model, right? You are taking your most of your product, 85% of the product is on consignment. Most people choose consignment because they make a higher commission. So yeah. you don't pay for your stuff until it sells. You bring these things in from customers and you only pay for it if it sells. So you don't have cash tied up in like piles of stock in the back room, which is like the, the age old problem of retail, you know? Yeah. Um, and so the franchisee needs to follow the systems. We have an automatic, 
automated pricing tool. We have an authentication tool. It's like an AI device that authenticates everything. So they need to follow all the systems. They need to either manage the store themselves or put a manager in place. So that's super important. You have to have someone who's running the day-to-day of the store. And they will make money as long as they're following the systems, doing the marketing. The inventory is coming on on consignment. They're only paying out commission when it sells. So it ends up being a really kind of lucrative and reliable model as long as the franchisee is really willing to follow the systems. Well stated. And we see that across all different sorts of franchise uh, systems where the franchisee goes rogue. And, you know, that's a big part of why you go into franchising to follow the plan, execute the plan because it's been proven. Um, yep. And that's where we see a lot of people run into issues. Um, 100%. How was like the employment structure? So you had mentioned the option to run the store yourself or potentially have a manager. Are there other employees, contractors? What's like a, a single location, a retail location look like? Yeah, so it's generally four to six employees. So our store's footprint is pretty small, 1,200 square feet. So you don't need a ton Solid. of people. Four to six employees is ample. One is the manager who can either be the franchisee or a hired manager. Then there's, there are two buyers and our buyers are the employees that are responsible for bringing in the inventory. So when sellers come in and they bring it in, the buyer uses our guidelines to look through it and determine which pieces are going to come in. We take in about 10% of what actually gets brought in the door. So we're really selective in order to maintain the really edited luxury collection in the stores a boutique feel. So we've got those two buyers, they're full-time. And then we've got generally three part-time sales. We call them sales stylists. Their job is to (laughs) style and of course to sell. So um, that's it. Manager, two buyers, three sales stylists. That's the structure. And like, how's it with the the labor crunch to give a parallel, you know, we we see there's a few franchisors in the pet space that hasn't been a big issue because people love pets. People like to work at pet franchises, so yeah. that they haven't been hit too hard from the labor side. How's it been for, for your type of business? As I imagine, a lot of people are just interested in fashion and, and it's not just a you know, random job that they're working in. It's true. And I, I think it, it does help to your point that we're selling something that's fun. <laughs> it's, you know, it's kind of like it's fun to sell designer stuff <laughs> and to get to, you know, touch and feel all these cool things all day long. There's something um, that's maybe a little bit more enticing about that than other options for an entry level job. That being said, and I say this all day long to franchise candidates who ask what the toughest part of the business is, it's the personnel. So <laughs> the hiring is the toughest part of the business. It is definitely tough for us. So I, I won't even sugarcoat it. It's a um, it's a challenge. And we are always looking for ways to find the benefits that appeal the best to our target recruits. And so our, I guess differentiator or advantage is that we're on the smaller side. So I think that we can be really nimble when we, you know, notice that, oh, you know what? The number one reason we hear people are quitting is because they're paying too much for parking to have to come to work. We can do something about that, right? We can change that really quickly. We're not a huge system. So I think that trying to listen to the employees who do stick around for a long time and figure out what it is that keeps them there and do more of that and less of the other things that's what we're trying to do every day. And we have some team members who've been with us for ever, nine, 10, 11, 15 years. Um, and so, you know, we need to listen to them and like, what, what, what is it that's making this work for them? 
and do more. And then listen, we do, we're really big on exit interviews. So we try to listen to people who are leaving, figure out what, it, what could we have done differently? You know, there's always something, even if we're not the reason they left, there's always something that we can learn from their experience with us. So I think that just being focused on continuously improving our offering as an employer is just as important as continuously improving our offering as a vendor to our customers and as a franchisor and hiring is tough. So it's just really important to make that top of the pyramid as far as where we spend our time and energy. That makes sense. So it's a priority of the franchisee. It's one of probably the number one priority hiring and managing people. Um, I see that across, across franchise systems. Yeah. Um, and it probably varies a little bit depending on what, what city and state you are, are in and how hot the market is. But yeah, uh, another topic, where are you looking to grow? Uh, where, where are you excited to uh, recruit prospective franchisees from? Yeah, I, there's so many incredible markets across the country. But if I had to name the top few, uh, Miami, as we've discussed, is in South Florida in general. Um, it's really kind of the the perfect storm for us of what consumers are looking for out there. And I think the franchisees will just kill it out there. So definitely excited about that area. Uh, Dallas also killer market for us. Um, there are uh, areas of Arizona that are very attractive around Scottsdale, Ann Arbor, Michigan. There are, of course, markets throughout California from Sacramento to the Bay Area to the Central Coast, LA to San Diego. I mean, like you said, 30 stores easily could be in California alone. Other parts of uh, Texas as well. We've talked about Houston and Austin as target areas. Um, And other parts of Florida also. We've talked about Naples a lot. Um, So the key ingredient is that there is enough of an average household income in the demo that's going to get us the inventory we need to make our numbers. So it varies a bit from market to market, but we're looking at roughly like a minimum average household income of about 100,000 in the community to bear out the concept. So that's, yeah, with demographic stats, like it's easy to group the zip codes. There's plenty of places in South Florida that need that, I'd imagine, at least 50 zip codes. Yeah. And you're probably, you're probably, um, taking advantage of like some tailwinds because LVMH and a lot of these big groups are entering are opening boutiques in like Naples and kind of second and third tier cities in the U S. So yes, um, those that supply will eventually make its way to you or okay. the consumers that don't are priced out of those boutiques can go to a TC, TC, TC. A hundred percent. We always say that if there's a Chanel there, we can be there too. If there's a dry bar, that's huge for us too. There's certain businesses that absolutely were following their their tailwinds and kind of like, oh, if they work there, we know that we can work there. Yeah, I'm sure it's wherever Ashley goes, whatever services and products that she, you know, she's purchasing. uh, Exactly. If there's dry bar, if there's Legree Pilates, yeah. Well, Joanna, any concluding thoughts for someone that's looking to enter in this industry or specifically open up uh, TCTC? Um, you know, just that we're really excited to work with franchise partners who are um, looking for a lifestyle business, something that they can potentially, you know, do for a few hours a week, hire a really great manager and enjoy the benefits of having this luxury boutique in their community and that pride of ownership. And they are willing to work hard, but they're not necessarily someone who feels like they want to like get their hands dirty every day. They just, they enjoy being around these types of luxury things and they enjoy um, being part of a sustainable business model. 
and we are excited to to work with people all across the country and grow the concept yeah i mean it seems like your time in sf like really influenced you and the bay area yeah. heads of the bay area is ahead of so many different things and you hear about technology but the big thing now coming out is sustainability and uh, so true the fact that yeah. you grew up in that environment that people were already acting like this and that only took the rest of the country about 20 years, but we're, we're catching up. <laughs> I've been chipping away at it slowly this whole time. Yeah. yeah. And at least the coast in Texas have caught on, but I'm sure a lot of places are, are it will take even more time. Yeah. Well, Joanna, it was a total joy. I learned a lot from today's conversation, and I'm sure those watching on YouTube or listening to the podcast have as well. Likewise. Thank you so much, Patrick. It was great to be here. Thank you. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode. You can leave us a review if you enjoyed the podcast episode. If you hated the podcast episode, let us know what you thought as well as what future episodes you'd like to hear. Feel free also to drop me a line at patrick at vettedbiz.com and subscribe please to our YouTube channel, Business and Franchise Opportunities by Vetted Biz. This has been Franchise Findings Podcast. Thanks for listening.